everyone. It's Friday the 4th of September and welcome to episode 21 of the Kite Podcast 2020 with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. And last week on the show, we spoke to Jimmy Evans and Duncan Williams about the forage season and we're going to be keeping up the feed theme this week looking ahead at prices and potential protein sources for this winter. To do this, we're joined by Kite's lead nutritionist and partner, Tim Davies, Kite's managing partner, John Allen, and as always, everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Waltland. Chris, let's start with you. Let's head over to you and your weekly dairy market update. Well, good morning, and I'm bringing you this week's report from the motor vehicle, the very special motor vehicle I'm in Mr. Tim's company car, a DeLorean. <laughs> Why? Why, Chris? Why are you in a DeLorean, Chris? Well, because Mr. Tim is the doc, the nearest person we have to Dr. Emmett Brown, inventor of Capital, and the DeLorean time machine in Back to the Future. All he has to do is grow his hair, wait for it to turn white, wear a lab coat and walk around with an alarmed look on his face, and he'd be there. <laughs> Mr. Tim is a genius, unlike the rest of us on this podcast who are just genial. <laughs> so I'm in his DeLorean, and it's a time machine too, powered by Edward Lott's spreadsheets. Now, ask me what year I'm in. What year? Oh, that's a good question. What year are you in, Chris? I'm in the year 2000, September 2000, in fact, the year and the month of the mass dairy consultant exodus from ADAS and the setting up of Kite. I can see where this is going. Uh, The industry has not been the same since. Still, we can't have everything. (laughs) (laughs) Ask me what I'm doing. What are you doing, Chris? I'm delivering food parcels. Because if you look at the photo posted on Kite social media of the original Scallywags, it's clear they all need a good feed. (laughs) No need for any feeble jokes this week. Nothing could be funnier than looking at that photo and realising that you, John, at one time, were an absolute wiener. David Levick, David Levick wears exactly the same jacket today that he did back then. And all the blokes have been terrible dressers from the start, not just recently. <laughs> and also, we have to see in that photograph that Ben Watts joined Kite before his voice had broken. <laughs> and jumping through time, though, jumping through time to the present day, how wonderful it is to see that Helen. Tanya and Roz are all still as timelessly, agelessly beautiful now as they were then. Wow, what exactly are you after, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That flattery won't get you anywhere when you've forgotten a good part of the team. I mean, what about Nikki? She's she's not on the picture, but she was there right at the start. Oh, jeepers, I forgot Nikki. Nobody forgets Nikki. Hey, can we re-record that, guys? (laughs) Yeah, it's one thing upsetting me, but don't go upsetting Nikki. (laughs) And skipping forward to the present day again, how wonderful it is to see that Helen, Tanya, Roz, and of course Nikki are all timelessly, agedly beautiful now as they were then. Chris, Chris, you've forgotten Sue, Sue Martindale. (laughs) Our sticker in cheek, Sue Martindale. (laughs) That's her. Sue, all the blokes are putty in her hands. That'll be Sue. (laughs) 
<laughs> we always do what Sue says. <laughs> um, uh, so, Helen, Tanya, Roz, Nikki, and especially Sue, bloody, 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 blah. Slice that in, guys, will you? <laughs> but enough wooing of the kite ladies that launched, lest they fight over me. <laughs> very, very aspirational, Chris. <laughs> anyway, we have to be quick, very quick, even with Tim's time machine, because the queue of farmers wanting to be transported back to the moment when they had a chance to sign an ARLA contract, but signed a Freshways one instead, is long indeed. <laughs> so to the markets, and up, up and away it is actually in our time machine. Cream is up to as high as 160 delivered, I hear, in places. Uh, one manufacturer has been making whole milk powder, so isn't offloading as much onto the market as it did. So I think that's had a boost. And the French. The French have, uh, have got good demand for fresh cream at the moment. It's really strong there. So mange two, mange two to that then, Rodney. Uh, butter is up on the back of cream, but there's a big differential between cream and fat and butter valuations and little activity in butter still. So there's probably a, a higher chance that butter will drag cream down than cream will drag butter up. And spot milk, I've heard, is as high as 34p delivered. So that's a great price. Uh, skim milk powder's up too. And even more significantly, so too is skim concentrate to prices almost as high as skim milk powder. So anyone who's getting a crap B price at the moment should be asking why they're getting a crap B price. Uh, on the continent, traders are reporting curd being up, Eden and Gouda being up, and some are saying mozzarella is up too, but others are saying it's not. So jury's out on that. And the futures are up okay. Uh, in the right direction, not by much, but still in the right direction, albeit slowly. On the GDT, that did its usual trick of throwing cold water over sentiment and was down 1%. But there are some scraps of good news. Um, and SMP was up slightly, so Arla should be pleased. So that's it from me. It's time to set the dial for 1.21 gigawatts, Tim, and 88 miles an hour, and to go back to September 2000 and to get those scrawny-looking kite consultants fed. If we don't, they might not last till the year 2020. And then what might happen? Goodbye. <laughs> um, good morning, John, who's not wearing an electric blue shirt and taekwondo today. Um, he isn't looking scrawny either. <laughs> <laughs> anymore. <laughs> 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 John, um, let's start by looking back to last week. Uh, what did you take from it? Well, I'm glad you're not going to go back looking at 20 years ago. Otherwise, then what would I do with the last 20 years? Right. Okay, well, what I took out of last week, uh, actually, other than we got a stabilisation of the weather, relative, although I do know there's been floods up in southwest Scotland before anybody tells me. Uh, is hopefully we are going to get some of that uh, stable weather into uh, September and that will enable this late cut silage to be made and hopefully fill my wine cellar, which you have to remember was the purpose of the <laughs> podcast. But anyway, or more important, uh, actually what I talk is three things. One is I think there's been a big shift to multi-cut, whether you like it or not, and it's shifted the way we make silage in the UK. Uh, Jimmy Evans' uh, uh, contribution really made the point about actually how everybody starts cutting silage far earlier than they ever used to. So that's great. Most people now make four cuts at least, not the old traditional three. 
And isn't it funny to hear the word traditional free cuts? Uh, but that was one thing. Second thing is, in terms of quantity of forage around the UK, it might be variable, but in general, it's pretty good. And actually, um, especially when the maize harvest does come in, fingers crossed, then we'll actually have plenty of good forage stocks. Whether or not the quality is there is, is more debatable, and Tim can comment a little bit about that. But I think we found this week uh, reports from 2,000 silage samples, um, which we've seen, and actually, the forage quality this year is as good as last in the, in, in, on the first and second cuts. So actually, there's some pretty good forage around, which means a lot of people are going to take uh, try and take milk off forage, especially, as we said last week, on those lower price contracts. But as we know, big variations between farms. So you do need some specialist advice to make sure you get it right. But I, I thought it was, it, it, we're at least going into the winter with a decent quantity and quality of forage for the UK. Mm. Okay, um, let's put that into context for the show this week. Now, way back in episode three, uh, back in the midst of time, we were talking about oil prices and the impact on feed. And that was, of course, in the very early days of COVID. Um, today, we're going to see how things have changed. But to start with, can you take us back to late April, early May and describe what the situation was like then in terms of feed? From my perspective, I, I think I'm going to hand over to Tim, but the, but what I'd like to ask Tim with, with the leading, sorry for you, Tim, is that, you know, back in April, May, we were anticipating because of the fall in oil prices, that feed prices would be falling quite significantly. Um, and lots of things that we forecast as a result of COVID don't seem to happen quite as we think they will happen. And I'm intrigued to know what your view is, Tim, you know, of, of where, where the markets have been and why they haven't uh, fallen further. Uh, on the commodity markets. Thank you, John. That's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think it's. Uh, I think the prospects for prices to relax are still there, and I think they've got, particularly on the proteins and the cereals, um, and probably from I, I suspect from December onwards. I think there could be some bargains going forward in December, uh, early or late November. Um, that's when uh, a, a lot of the Maize in North America will be harvested. The soya in North America will have been harvested. Um, there'll be a lot of Russian wheat on the market. Russian wheat crops going to be the second biggest in, on record. And, and recent estimates are saying it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, so uh, Australia are back in the picture with, I forget, about 25 million tonnes of wheat. And that's significantly up on where they've been the last sort of three years with their droughts. So so I think there's... there's uh, there's relief coming later on, um, but in the short term, the next two months, three months maybe, um, there are problems. And um, in the UK, uh, wheat prices, are, supplies are tight. We've got uh, countries split in two halves. Wheat crops have been a little disappointing in the south. Um, in the north, a lot of those crops are still standing in the fields, uh, waiting for the weather to clear. Um, so, so markets are nervous, and uh, and that's created a little bit of a of a panic, and 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 that's just nudged prices up. But I think it's just going to be short term. Wheat is not going to fly away, but at the moment it's sitting around 170 x farm. Barley, where uh, feed barley is still cheap. Feed barley is still x farm, sort of 130, so an absolute bargain. Um, rape has. Uh, gone up uh, about four pounds last week, mainly because of soya. Um, the Chinese uh, 
dominate the market as far as buying is concerned. And, and they've stuck their fingers in the, in the pond and they're now sort of buying loads of soya. Um, and that's sort of, that's, it's the demand side. There's a big, big soya crop coming, but it's just this, the Chinese just buying loads of soya at the moment. Um, there's a little bit of talk about uh, La Nino sort of returning, and that's adding, making the markets nervous as well. But despite all of that, there's still a huge, huge crop of soya coming. And uh, so, so there's big, big soy crop coming, and that is going to inevitably put a cap on rapeseed prices. But the rape harvest in Europe hasn't been great. Um, it's not the end of the world because there'll be Canadian rape coming into the country soon and uh, Ukrainian rape. Uh, but just in the short term, Erith, uh, the uh, rape crushing plant uh, is uh, had a fire and they're, they're still not back at capacity. number of the European rape, uh, vegetable oil crushing plants have switched to crushing soya instead of rape because soya, uh, soya crushing is more, more profitable for them. So there's a lot of soya oil coming to the markets. Arable farmers are talking about abandoning rape for next year. Um, uh, they've had so many problems with uh, uh, the, the, that little beetle eating the seeds and, and crops not sort of coming off. And, and and poor prices on rape. So um, the neonics ban has really hit them. And the, the CRM who we talk to, and, and they sort of forecast forward and look at what's happening in, in, uh, in the global world with crops, they're predicting that UK rape harvest next year could be down to the size of the old crop. What about now, Tim? How has the situation changed? Because although uh, Harvest 2020 here has been challenging, um, as I know very well, uh, it hasn't been so bad in Europe and other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah. In uh, in, in Russia, there's still a huge, huge crop coming. Um, it's going to be the second biggest crop on record. And and with every week that goes by, they keep upgrading the uh, the, the forecast estimates for that crop. Um, the maize crop in North America is going to be huge. Um, that's uh, had a, they've had a little bit of wind over there. Iowa a few crops have been flattened, but um, but against the total size of the crop, it's still huge. And what people don't take into account, there's a lot of talk about sort of forecast yields. What they don't take into account is where's all this stuff going to go. And a lot of maize and wheat, well maize in particular, goes to bioethanol. And bioethanol production is well down on normal levels. So um, and bioethanol fuel tanks are absolutely full around the globe. So a lot of North American maize is going to end up spare on the market with nowhere to go. And prices at the moment are around the £100 a tonne mark for Chicago maize. Um, so that's going to end up finding its way to countries like uh, uh, Africa, Asia, um, displacing wheat exports from Europe, and that'll come back to Europe and put downward pressure on, on European cereals, or at least cap European cereals. In the UK, we have got a bit of an issue with markets nervous, uh, shortage, tight supplies, and a little bit of nervousness, tight supplies, old stock of wheat is running out. Um, crop harvest in, in southern England has come in, and it's not been quite as good as expected. North, north of England, um, crops are still standing in fields, and and it's much more of a struggle to get that in. Long term forecast is for things to still fall, but not in the next few months. It'll be more from uh, November, December onwards. 
Okay, so what does that mean um, in terms of this winter's feed prices compared to last? Um, sadly, it means uh, it's bad news for this winter because while we're talking about cereals and proteins, um, the fibre feeds have been going up. And things like palm kernel, soya hulls, beet pulp, um, they make up uh, a significant chunk of, of dairy feed. Their prices have gone up. And um, uh, we're looking at compound feeds this winter being about 16, 18 pounds up on, on last winter. Um, or about eight pounds up on the summer where we are now. John, we've, we've talked on previous shows um, about the various environmental pressures and impacts on, on the market. Soya is, of course, a potential source and is used not just in dairy, but pigs and poultry um, as well. However, um, how does using soya or palm, for that matter, fit within that environmental context? And I suppose what I'm really thinking here is thinking of, of retailers as well and, and pressure from that side of the market. Um, yeah, I'm going to pass over to Tim in a minute. But just before we do, what I find amazing is is how many retailers now and and it feeds its way via the processors are banning uh, the use of products or you've got to got to source them from sustainable sources which i'd like tim to comment on about uh, how easy that is to do Uh, up until now tim uh, and through our business has always advocated using a lot of rape uh, in place of soya in diets for instance and without a loss of performance but We've now got challenges with rape. So, you know, the road's running out for a lot of these uh, alternative products. And it uh, doesn't seem like there's any stoppage in sight, not as far as I can see. Is that fair, Tim? That is fair, yes. Um, and, and, and you're quite right, John, the road is running out. Uh, we've already seen about five or six different protein sources which have been banned um, uh, for various uh, reasons. And, and we've got power stations that are hungry and burning up uh, things like palm kernel, wheat feed, uh, uh, straw uh, for, for, for biomass, and that's taking um, wheat feed and palm kernel off the market or, or at least is pushing prices up. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we're left with a sort of shrinking list of raw materials we can go to. Um, and uh, it is going to be a big problem. Now, whether we go down the sustainable soya road I don't know. Uh, that, that's going to bring more costs to the industry. Um, reap seed harvest for next year is forecast to be down at about 1 million tonnes, which makes rapeseed next year a, a small niche crop in Europe, um, uh, uh, about the same size as the uh, European oat crop. So, so there's going to be a shortage of rapeseed coming through. Um, the crushers aren't keen on... Uh, rapeseed, they prefer crushing soya because there's more profit from soy oil, uh, which (coughs) seems to be okay. It seems to be okay for humans to be using soy oil in cooking and catering and and everything else, but it's not okay for cows to be eating soybean meal. Um, So um, we have got a bit of a crisis coming our way, I feel. So Tim, what are the options for protein sources if soya is less available? And especially as we've said, rape can't fill that gap. Um, the, 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 the choice is limited. There, there are, uh, you know, wheat distillers, maize distillers products. They're, they're, they're useful. There's a good place for them, but they are high in unsaturated fats, which, uh, suppress milk quality, uh, particularly milk butter fats. Um, there are peas and beans, but they're relatively low in protein compared to rape and soya. 
Um, there are things like uh, uh, sunflowers. Sunflowers are a real possibility, high-protein sunflower. But sunflowers are low-energy feed. It's, uh, it's, a, it's about 10 11 ME. So that'll, that'll knock production. Uh, it, 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 well, it'll be, it'll be a job. It'll be a difficult job for, for nutritionists to balance diets with sunflower. We'd end up feeding a lot more oil, vegetable oil, into cows. And, uh, and that's going to bring more cost into diets. Um, uh, so the choice is limited. The other option is maybe to look at our forages, producing higher forage, higher protein forage crops. In, in, in the Netherlands, for instance, virtually all their silages are 18% protein. In the UK, we're picking up a lot of silages that are 13, 14, 15% protein, but, but on average around the 14.5% protein mark. And, uh, and, and some of that will be down to the way we manage our grassland. Uh, but some of it is probably because some of our crops are short of sulfur and uh, we need to relearn some of the skills of soil and crop management to, to, to get these higher protein silage crops. How easy and how much credence should we attach to the sustainable soya certificates that you can buy? Because the trade is increasingly saying we can supply sustainable soya uh, and the premium for the credits is not as high as some people would uh, expect. How credible is that? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very tricky, tricky area, John, because um, there will be some sustainable soya sources out there, um, but there are an awful lot of unscrupulous governments uh, out there as well, and uh, unscrupulous individuals. And if you add, uh, if you, adding a certificate onto a tonne of soya is going to increase the cost of that tonne by about a pound. So if you're bringing a shipment of 200,000 tonnes of soy over uh, to the UK from somewhere in South, Af uh, South America, for instance, it's, it's a very, very easy way to, just, to make money, just printing off a certificate and saying it's certified. Um, and, um, and is it? I mean, how do we test it? I mean, they, 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 it's, 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 it's a bit of a grey, dodgy area at the moment, and I think the trade know that as well. And there are different levels of sustainability certification, um, but uh, but uh, it 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 needs to mature and develop more, I suspect. So Ted, there was there's a positive here in terms of perhaps improving on the system. How how do you reckon we could go about doing that? What's what's required? Um, what's what what the, what the industry really needs is for uh, the guys who are doing this certification to get together and to. Um, make the certification more clearer and more robust so that when we are buying sustainable soya, we know it actually is sustainable soya and, uh, and, and that the, you know, a little, a little bit like the free trade mark on bananas, that the money goes back and that the stuff is, is done properly. Um, and if that were to happen, then we could carry on feeding soya and, uh, and soya hulls as well. And, and that would be, that would be the perfect solution. I think to where we are at the moment hmm. okay um well that's all we have time for today but a big thank you to our guests today tim davis john allen and chris walkland thanks also to you for listening and we hope that you've taken something positive away from this episode certainly i want to leave you on the thought of please do go and take a look at that photograph on twitter if you haven't already and 
thinking about here, we, we can take a big positive in that the next generation of Kite and the next generation of the industry is strong um, and we've got nothing, nothing to fear. Um, so uh, we'll look forward to uh, heading back to the future for the next 20 years. In the short term, please join us again next week. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from Will, me and all of us here. And we'll see you next time.